When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. This is a news show this week, so we do have a panel joining us. But we also stumbled into an awesome 15-minute interview. We had the opportunity that I don't think a lot of independently owned podcasts get. I was pretty surprised to be invited to talk to someone at director level, a personality you will have heard of, within the F1 organization. So, I guess when the FIA want to talk about a new feature or push a, a new aspect of the of the the show of the broadcast, they line up the journalists in like a press junket. So maybe they go online and they invite the likes of Joe Saywood and Chris Medland and ESPN, all those kind of things, and then they talk to the representative for a bit, ask the questions they want, and then they get to write it up. I think generally podcasts aren't really part of that, but for this latest innovation. I was surprised and delighted that Mr. Apex was invited to come and join that that junket. It's a surprise because podcasts don't normally do that kind of thing. I, I confirmed, I said yes, before they could change their mind. And I could tell it wasn't quite inside what they normally do because the representative was quite surprised. He went, oh, oh what, are we going to be, am I going to be on, on a podcast now? Is it, we're recording it now? I went, yeah, is that all right? And you could see the kind of, oh, no, I wasn't prepared to be on a podcast, but... He just switched and went, that was it. Yep, I'm in. And then dropped in and, and joined us for an interview. So that was pretty exciting. And I asked afterwards, I said, how come we've been included in something like that? Like, I really wasn't expecting anything like that. And the representative just said, right, well, we looked at your reach. You know, this is a, a booking agent. We looked at your your reach and saw value in in what you were doing. So we invited you along. And that now has to be credited to every single person out there who's ever shared a link, who's ever told their friends, go and check out Missed Apex podcast, because we don't have a big advertising budget. You are the biggest tool we have, and you've deployed yourselves fantastically. So please 
keep telling yourself, telling your friends to check out Mr. Apex podcast so we can keep doing awesome stuff. Uh, we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Before we get to the interview, let's uh, introduce your panel for today. It's Matt Two Rumpets. Hello, Matt. Hey there, Spanners. Did you just call our audience tools? Uh, useful tools. That's the greatest compliment. Hey, a spanner is a tool. Yes, and, and nothing personal. I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I may have already listened to the interview and made a list of questions you should have asked. Oh, do you know what? I will be absolutely fascinated to hear that because you get into that kind of situation. I instantly realized that we didn't really typically belong there. And part of me was like a bit apologetic. Oops, sorry, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I, you know, I wiped my shoes on the way in. I tried to be polite. But I would love to hear how you would have done it differently, all American and that. Fair enough. I'll shoot you the document later. We've also got our resident vet, Chris Catman-Turner. How's it going, Chris? Yeah, good evening. Going very well, thank you. I, I know you best. I best know you from being the commentator for our Missed Apex iRacing series, where we treat our pretend race cars very seriously indeed, as we did on round one on Friday night, a very successful event. It was fantastic, and I'm uh, absolutely honoured to be part of the Chris Squared commentary team. Yeah, you and Chris Stevens absolutely knocking it out of the park. And we're joined from all the way in Australia by our video editor, Steve Amy, the person who ins- builds these sets and inspires us to make our broadcasts a little bit more than just speaking and smiling, but making it into an actual TV-type thing. Hey, Steve. Hey, Spanners. How are you? Good to see you again. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Two things. Firstly... I do want people to go and check out the link to the iRacing broadcast because mm. it, it brings up some interesting parallels. You know, when we look at the F1 production and you go, oh, this build-up, it's, it's crazy. You know, they're talking to people, they're doing features. But you've done that for us on our kind of – it's not just let's look at the practice and then go into the race. There was features, voiceovers, produ- produced guides and everything. It was amazing. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, we try hard to give people something to look at, you know, before the race starts. Um we obviously we don't have quite the resources that the Sky and F1 have, but yeah. we do the best we can with what we've got. We've got heart, mate. That's what we've got. We've got heart. That's it. Yeah. And we've got a good crew too. So, you know, they all contribute. And really exciting, I'd imagine, as an Australian Formula One fan. We'll talk about the whole 2022 calendar, but it looks like we're going back to us. That'd be really good. I think if they don't go back next year, that could be the end of it. So mm. I really hope that it happens. I think it will this time. Quickie, quickie on this. It's not the opening round this year for the first time in a long time. How does that feel? Um, I've, I'm kind of two minds about it. Uh, in one way, I think it's good because Melbourne, I don't think, was ever a good race or a good track for the first mm. race of the year. But it takes away from some of the uh, associated spectacle that goes with the first race of the year. And, you know, it's a bit more important and there's a carnival atmosphere. I hope that, and Melbourne has always had a great carnival atmosphere uh, attached to the race. And I hope that that keeps going um, a little bit later in the year. And, of course, the other thing is, uh, in the past, it, it was run before our Australian rules football season got underway, and that has huge audiences. And I'm just hoping that the fact that the football season ah. is already rolling doesn't, you know, take away from viewer numbers and all that sort of stuff. Why did you not simply outbid the Bahrainis? 
to get the... Uh, the yeah, I, don't, I think it's a matter of timing. I think Formula One wanted to leave as much time as they possibly could uh, before the Australian race, just in case we had another flare-up and all that sort of stuff. Roger that, and also doesn't isn't it the seasons as well? Like, wouldn't you risk rain if we did it earlier? Oh well, hmm. it's already getting a little bit. You know, it'll be colder. The track temperatures will be down. There is a higher possibility of rain, so all of those things play a part. Rain isn't a bad thing, but uh, credit where credit is due. I'm pretty sure Liberty will be all over the AFL connection, and you'll see all sorts of AFL players wandering around the paddock that weekend. Excellent. That's your panel. Steve Amy, Chris Catman-Turner and Matt Two Rumpets. I am going to now play you, though, uh, an interview. I I was very excited and I'm sure there's things I could have done better. And Matt will tell me everything that we could have done a little bit better. But let's take you deep into the heart of Formula One. Have you ever seen your favourite driver bog down at the start and start disappearing down the back of the grid and you think, why? Why, F1 gods? Why have you abandoned me as a fan and my driver? What Was it the driver's fault? Who knows? Was it the car? It's a mystery. Maybe the engineer told them to press the wrong button. It remains a, a dark, mysterious black box that we are left to ponder. And then maybe someone in the commentary will put us out of our misery sometime later. But F1 is a kind ruler and is providing us fans with new analytical graphics to help unpick all the mysteries of an F1 Grand Prix launch. Here to explain what F1 are up to is the director of data systems at Formula One. And of course, the former F1 engineer at Jordan, Ferrari and Williams. Rob Smedley is joining us in the shed. Good afternoon, Rob. Hi there, hi Spanners. Nice to meet you. Now, Rob, you're probably the most famous F1 engineer in in F1 history, and us fans really do now enjoy seeing those relationships and seeing seeing how you connected with Felipe Massa. You kind of opened that world up to to all of us. Possibly, yeah. I, I don't know whether it was an accolade that I, that I was ever uh, interested in or chased after to become the most famous race engineer in uh, in, in F1 history. But um, if that has resulted in more fans coming to Formula One and more fans enjoying that, the, the, the engineer-driver relationship, you know, that, that sports, technical, uh, psychological relationship, then I think um, it's a good thing. Thank you. To, to be that that role, to have that kind of TV facing role, is it considered like a glamour aspirational thing on the ladder? Are there people always nipping at your heels, wanting to be the race engineer? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, I think it's uh, it's it's very very hard work. Um, you are in the spotlight and under scrutiny um, an awful lot of the time. Um, you know, and, and I think that there's lots of people. There's probably there's probably lots of people in the team that would like to do that job, um, but would never put themselves forward because of the, the 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 pressure and the amount of time that you need to give up. But there's also a lot of people in the team that, that would never be interested in that job. So you know, you know, they kind of look at it and they make what I would now consider to be the right decision that they wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Uh, it's 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 a lot of hard work and a lot of lows. There's some really good highs as well. I mean, I loved it when I did it. Where is it on the on the pecking order? Because as far as we're concerned, you know, it's a two man team that we see on the telly: the driver and the race engineer. Where where do you actually kind of sit? Give us an idea of of, of your hierarchy. 
Well, I mean, the the, the race engineer, it's he he is the he's in charge of the car, right? Um, so that's where his um, his or her, hopefully soon in Formula One, um, that's where their uh, their remit, you know, um, is that that they are in charge of all the aspects of the car. So whether it's the reliability of the car, um, whether or not it's the performance of the car, the race strategy, that type of thing. Uh, usually, the race engineer. Um, depending on how the team positions the race engineer, but but they have responsibility for all those different aspects. They have responsibility for bringing it all together, um, and then for producing what is um, the, the the best trade off, the best compromise, which which is which is effectively the most optimized position, be that for the car, for the race strategy, for 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 anything else that, that, that's going on. I mean, Formula One has changed so much since since I got involved. You know, when I got involved, there was. As, as a race engineer, there was myself and and what we would call a data engineer back then. You know, a guy that would 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 back you up with with all the data analytics, which is where I actually started in the first place. Um, and now the teams um, have significantly more engineers. You know, they have orders of magnitude more engineers, but they also have many more engineers that work on the car. And whether that they're, they're engineers that work on the car um, at the track or whether they're engineers that work on the car remotely, um, you know, you can have engineers um, at least one engineer and more in in some cases a lead engineer and then support engineers for each and every area of the car and all of these ladder up into the race engineer um to allow them to to do their job properly so it's still a pretty lofty position but we do we do wonder for example bono talking to to lewis how often is it bono making a call a snap decision and he goes right this is all on me guys i got this or does he have someone tapping his shoulder going ah you'd best get him to pit now yeah, I think I think I mean if you look there, you know, in in that particular organisation, and, and each organisation is different, um, so it's very very difficult to say. But you know, James uh, Barrels is the guy who runs the the actual strategic, the race strategy element of it, um, and and he actually has final say as to as to when um, you know when the cars pit, um, you know when the cars go out in qualifying, all of that, and, it, and it's different from team to team. You know, some teams the the engineers have a have a, a much um, more authoritative position, kind of like when I was doing it, which was a you know a long time ago now. Um, ah, so you were you were in charge then back in your day. You were a bit more, bit more of the main guy. Well, in, in, in my day, the race engineer was 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 a lot more in charge. Now the race engineer has become a little bit more the conduit between a very very important conduit, by the way, between the the rest of these guys and the driver. Um, you know, and 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 that's the bit that. Um, I think has, has, has probably changed. That, that's the seismic change for me um, over the last, um, what, 10, 15 years or whatever. Mm, it, it's fascinating. And I, I obviously we want to get into those relationships more, but they, they don't seem quite as open as you were back in the day. And it really seemed like you and Felipe Massa were proper good mates. And that's why whenever you had to deliver bad news, it seemed all that bit more devastating because we could see the emotion and the connection. But but these days, you're away from the pit wall. You're working for Formula One. I mentioned uh, at the top of the interview that we're going to be seeing more start graphics. And I have to say, it is a bit of a, a black hole. We see the lights go green, and then one car just doesn't get away. And and a lot of the time, we just don't know why. So so what is it that yeah, we're going to see now that we didn't see before? before? Well, I mean, we're, we're going to, you know, you, you're going to start simple because don't forget, the, this is the this is the graphic that is, is supposed to engage fans rather than, you know, there's only 50 people in the world who, you know, got my experience that can can understand it. I think that would be <laughs> the wrong approach. So, 
you know, we're, we're starting off to, to give you in these first in the first inception of these graphics to give to give the fan much more insight about the really important bits and, and break it down macroscopically. So 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 we kind of say right, what happens in the, the that that first period of the start from zero to one hundred kph? And bearing in mind that a Formula One car can accelerate from zero to one hundred kph in two point three seconds or somewhere of the like. Um, these cars are accelerating fairly hard, right? Uh, the drivers are having to get everything right. And there's a lot of not only hand-eye coordination and just general feel through the, through the seat of their pants as to what the, these cars are doing and, 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 and reacting as, uh, you know, each and every meter as it moves along. Um, but there's also, you know, the drivers having to position their car on the track, um, you know, and, and see, where the, see where the gaps are, see where the holes are that they're going to try and get into. And, and, and if... You know, it's like the old uh, days of thunder thing. You know, if you're going for a hole that exists now, it's not going to be there by the time you get there. So they're kind of, you know, doing all of this. They're using their natural intelligence to to try to to, to predict where where to put the car. So they got all this going on, and they, and, and at the same time, you're trying to accelerate the uh, car. You know, way way beyond probably what um, you know any any road car could ever do, um, or any modern road car would, would be able to do. Um, with somebody concentrating on that full time, you know, you've then got the the little bit before that, which is the reaction time. And I think this is this is one of the beauties for me, at least, is is we get to show the the general public how fast these guys can react. You know, when the lights go out, um, how fast they can react and drop that clutch pedal to the to the first position. Um, so you're getting to see all of these different elements of the of the start, and you know, rather than just being a black hole, as you said, yeah. we're starting to unpick it and we're starting to unpack it. Is there any reluctance from the teams or, or specifically the drivers? Because now when they duff the start, we're definitely going to know it was them. Well, you, you, you know it's them anyway. If you just listen, you, <laughs> you can hear it's whether they've made a mistake or whether, um, you know, whatever it is. I mean, usually, you know, these, these guys are, are, are world-class athletes, right? Um, and, you know, I would say nine times out of ten when there's a problem with the start, it's because of some... Um, control system setting or it's because there's excessive wheel slip in the position where the car is that the engineers weren't um, weren't expecting or something like that and most of the time then it's up to these guys it's up to the drivers to 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 find their way through that and that's the kind of stuff that we can start to analyze now and look at you know where they lost time but where they gained time back and how they use the clutch how they use the throttle pedal um, you know all of these all of these really interesting points to, to get right underneath what really makes a great start from a, a fan point of view, we've got so much more information than we used to have. Obviously, with the predictions, there's a lot of space for then for that to not pan out. But with stuff like this, actual information, we, we've never been better informed. Is this is this the start of us getting more and more information? Do you think? When we went back, you know, when we started this partnership with with AWS and, and we brought in the their um, ML teams, you know, ML Solutions Labs. My 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 particular um, thought back then was it reminded me of Formula One 20 years ago when we started to build all of these tools, um, you know, perhaps a little bit less um, artificial intelligence based, um, but still we were building all of these tools that, that before, before that, um, guys like me were using a notepad and a pen and a calculator. Um, I'm watching, you know, the old monitors of, of, of page one. And, and from that, we kind of drew all of our information and made a lot of decisions. Um, and then as you fast forward a little bit, you know, to, to when I've been doing it for a while and we started to build all of these tools, um, you know, there, there, was, there, there was 
again, you know, I put myself in that chair. And a lot of us said, well, how can these tools possibly, possibly, you know, um, you know, um, support my brilliance as, you know, with my pen and my calculator and my, <laughs> uh, and my notepad. And of course, you go two, three years down the line of using all of these tools and realize that you, you are, you know, so many levels deeper than, than, than you were before and so much more accurate in your predictions that you think, well, I couldn't really live without them now, you know. And, and if you took away the pit walls from, and, and all the analytical tools and everything else from, from the Formula One teams, I would suggest that they would, they, they would struggle um, a lot. Mm. Um, and, it's, and, and my prediction was, was the same will, will happen with fan engagement in, in that we kind of have to, you know, you can't bombard the fans with, with data. Equally, you can't tell the story before the story's happened because it's just going to become, you know, uh, everybody's going to turn off. So it's about jeopardy and it's about, you know, maintaining that edge of the seat stuff that, that only sport can do for you um, because because we don't know the final result before the final result. It's not a movie, right? And and I think that if we're able to, to do that with data, or if we were able to do that with data, then we would engage the fans and the fans would start to really appreciate it. And I think that 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 what we hear now is exactly what, what was predicted was if we were to start to take away this data, um, what you, the, the fans would struggle without it. You know, the fans are starting to rely on it now. So so I think that it's, it's been a good thing and it's been a good experiment. We've just got to get the balance right. You know, through a live broadcast, you just got you can't bombard people with data. Um, but equally, outside of the live broadcast, you know, there's some fans that just want more and more and more and more. And we've got to be able to give them that as well. I enjoyed and started watching F1 in the late 80s and 90s. If I try to go back and watch a Grand Prix from that time now, I find it impossible to follow. The broadcast quality has gone up. But if I may just put you on the spot before you go, now that we're going to get a glimpse into what drivers are doing, who's got the best reaction time, who's doing what, have you got any predictions of drivers that were suddenly going to go, oh, they're blinking brilliant at starts, they are? I I, I don't think we're going to be able to tell you anything that you didn't, already know because the good guys are the guys who get to turn one now and you don't need data to tell you that right what data is all about is 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 for us to be able to tell you how they did it um you know so so it's getting under the skin of it and and getting a few levels deeper than where we are now um so i think we know who's good at starts you know if you if you watch the the the, the top guys and the way they they get to the first corner the the, the guys who always manage to find that hole and, and 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 nobody else comes into it you know whatever that talent is you know this is the bit that we're going to tell you i think that one thing that will surprise um a lot of the fans and i'm not going to start giving numbers because because i think that it's just going to be interesting when these numbers start to to kind of fall out of these analytics but reaction time reaction time is amazing for a formula 1 driver it's amazing um, and you know, in some cases, you're getting close to or, or beyond what is considered to be to be humanly possible. So, I think that's going to be a nice little surprise for everybody. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Thank you so much for dropping into the shed, and thank you for your time, uh, uh, Rob Smedley, and uh, from F1, everyone. Uh, just a thrill. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. The data that you saw in that interview was the F1 Insights powered by AWS or Amazon Web Services. For more information, you can go to aws.amazon.com.f1. There is a link in the show notes below. And of course, you can see all those graphics on your F1 broadcasts. So Matt, now that I am over being 
entirely just starstruck. It was just incredible to pop onto a call and go, wow, that's actual Rob Smedley from the TV. Have to say, like, the dude is just the friendliest guy. He has got such a disarming smile. It's crazy. Yeah, well, I think that's part of why. I mean, I think that's part of why he sort of achieved the quote unquote fame that he did. Yeah. Is because he came along at just the right time when we were beginning to hear more and more radio broadcasts between team and drivers. But what I love is that he sort of spanned this transitional, transformational period in the role of race engineer. But what I really love is that he's just all about the numbers. In fact, one of my favorite memories is him on the grid. I think it was when he was with Williams, uh, with Massa in his last year. And I think Brundle caught up to him on the grid looking fierce and said, oh, what are you most concerned about? Thinking he'd talk about race strategy or this or that or the other. And he just turned to Martin and said, heat soak, and got right back to whatever it was he was doing. I mean, he is a real engineer all the way through, and it's delightful to hear him talking on our show. I've just been corrected in our live chat. I misspoke slightly. It is aws.amazon.com forward slash F1. That will get you there. But as I said, the link is in the show notes below. I think uh, something that was interesting was him talking about being a data guy at the core. And we tend to think of the race engineers as, you know, we've got this romantic vision from the past of where he's got uh, smoke hanging out from his mouth, dirty coveralls, you know, spanner in the back of a thing going, hey, you treat this like a hire car. This is sophisticated prototype, you. But actually, a lot of these guys are like, like they're proper, proper, like, en- educated engineers. Yeah, well, I mean, they they are data geeks, and that's how they look at the world, and that's how they make sense of it. And the reason Formula One has hired so many of them is because that is the way forward. And and wasn't it interesting, Catman, to see just how that dynamic between engineer and driver has changed over the years? That's kind of news to me, you know, that difference between the role now and the role back when we were romanticizing that Smedley-Massa relationship. Yeah, and that's part of what made that relationship so beautiful. It was with him and Massa, who was just a, a cuddly little chap, and and they were so close. And when he had to deliver him bad news, you know, it was, it was, it was just like a father talking to his son. It was a beautiful thing. That being said, though, Spanners, I'm not entirely not to want to argue with with Rob Spedley, who clearly knows a lot more than I do. Here but, we go. <laughs> yeah, but here we go. So. Um, that relationship, I think, is still, you know, he said it's about a conduit. I still think it's incredibly important. Um, there's, I don't think it's a coincidence that in 2016, you know, Lewis and Rosberg, uh, they swapped engineers, some really high up engineers in his garage. Um, and, and that did, I think, have a contributing factor to, to bringing around the change in the guard in that season. Right. And there's also a there's a human element to it as well. So obviously we had all the Felipe baby and you hear uh, Peter Bonington's tone on the on the radio with Lewis Hamilton is probably the way like, I would need to be spoken to. And that's the way that people speak to me actually when I'm, when I'm on air, when I've got an in-ear producer as well. It's like, it's okay, Richard, calm down. Everything's going to be fine. We'll talk about it later. Let's just get, get on and do the job. You know, when I've been like typing in my little chat, like this is ridiculous. The guests haven't been lined up. And they're like, okay, Richard, it's all right. You can do this. We'll talk about it afterwards. And that, that's what I would need. And you're right. It is important. Yeah. And you could also look at maybe Vettel uh, in his last year at Ferrari when he wasn't 
you know, the team's golden boy. They didn't, he'd lost confidence in them. They'd lost, they'd lost confidence in him. And all of a sudden his performance dropped right off. Um, and I, I don't think that's uh, any way down to the, um, the, the relationship with the engineer. I think that's a big part of it. Now we'll circle back to a lot of the stuff, but I, I want to ask Steve as well, because I feel a little bit bad. He was talking about the race start, you know, where they, they replay the race start over and over again at the beginning. And I do feel a bit bad because I was sitting there going, ooh, we, we have slated that so much. But it's an interesting balance between they're obviously trying to give us more information. And now, you know, you've been doing like our iRacing broadcast and you've made a lot of TV. Like pacing is important as well, isn't it? And I think that's the, that's the reason they put those starts there was probably a pacing issue. That's probably true in the past. Uh, These days, there is so much action happening in the first three or four laps of a race that I think that they have to just, you know, concentrate on the actual racing for that period. I I understand that, you, you know, people want to look at replays of the start, but... Uh, I think that they could wait a few laps. I really do think that, you know, getting halfway through the second lap and then seeing 27 replays of the um, of the start from 27 different angles, I think it takes away from the excitement of the race. Show that stuff later, but maybe show it in your two camera angles yeah. and then show a bit of the live race and then come back and show another camera angle a bit later if that's what you want to do. But don't take the focus away from the actual racing. Well, whilst I agree, it sort of makes a little bit of sense now why they've been focusing so much on the starts and the driver point of view if they're about to give us all this uh, extra data. Sure. Um and I think they've got to be careful, though. Uh, there's a balance between, as they kind of, as Rob Smedley alluded to, there is a balance between, you know, enough data and and well, data down here, data up there. Data. Um, well, we'll argue about that. But I think that there is a balance that has to be struck between the amount of information that the viewers see and um, uh, an overload in it. Um, you know, too much it takes away from the racing. Not enough when we get bored. <laughs> we, we, we are fragile creatures, aren't we? The, we the are. Line, that is the line, map that they are walking is between us, desperate for data and just going, oh, I don't know, this is rubbish, I'm going home. Yeah, well, I mean, the, I think Steve brings up the excellent point that the issue isn't the number of replays we, stay, we see because they're telling us the story of how the drivers got to where they are in the first phase of the race. And that's incredibly important and unbelievably complicated. I can't tell you the number of times I've gone back and rewatched the start myself and said, oh, wow, that's how that happened. I had no idea because you just can't follow that much action at the same time, no matter how good you are at doing that. The issue that I think most people have had is that they've been covering up some of the subsequent action when they went back to it. But one of the things I like about this graphic is it will give us on screen a lot of information that doesn't require taking the entire race we're currently watching off the screen. And I think we'll talk a little bit later about exactly what they're going to give us. And you'll be very impressed and surprised. This is, this is one of my favorite new things. Catman, then Steve. Yeah, as long as it's not intrusive, then that's fine. I think at the last race in Turkey, they I was infuriated when they were showing um, yeah. Bottas <laughs> from P1 fighting, leading yeah, yeah. to the first corner and there was literally nothing to see whilst people were overtaking it was silly yes Hamilton and and Vettel were were scrapping at that point and we did sort of miss uh, Vettel's defense but I think Steve you'll agree that that heat of the moment choice 
for video switching. I mean, it's not as easy as we're we're we're, we're making out from the sofa. And I'm not just being a stooge just because I got to speak to Rob Smedley one time. No, it's a difficult thing. I mean, the guys who are directing, um, and it's not just one person, it'll be sort of three directors on the, the, the full telecast, they've got to coordinate and they've got to figure out what is the right thing to show at the right time. And the start isn't really in, important, you know, part of the whole procedure, really. It's the most impo- important part of the whole procedure, perhaps, except for the finish line at the end of the race. Um, I have a question, and um, I've noticed in the last couple of races, they put up a reaction time graphic. I guess they were running tests, yeah. you know, seeing how it went. Now, they put up a reaction time graphic. It was quite small and quite, you know, down in the bottom uh, right-hand corner of the frame. Um, and it didn't uh, excite me. Sure, the reaction time is an important part of the whole thing, but it's not the whole story, okay, that doesn't... But then, Matt, you pointed out that you will be able to look at the offline uh, data later. And from that, I mean, in millisecond uh, increments, they're not only measuring the reaction time, which is good, but they're also measuring the relative positions of the cars to each other in such small, you know, on such a small scale that later on you will be able to build a really good picture of mm. actually what went on, where this wheel spin happened, who actually didn't take off on a nice straight line, um, all of those things from the data. I'm actually impressed that they're collecting that amount of data in that short amount of time. My one thought is I hope that they don't try and overcomplicate the display of it. Mm. They've got to keep it simple. But the overriding feeling I've got as a fan is and as a content producer is, more things to argue about we've got so many more things to argue about when someone gets a slightly better start you know people go ah ah look at Verstappen he's he's nothing but a pretender look at him with his poor reaction time and other people will go oh no his reaction time was actually statistically better but the the grip level was worse on that side of the track and it must be the car isn't that right Steve that's the arguments we're gonna have Oh, you bet. That's exactly. And that uh, the information they give us is only going to throw petrol on that, that whole, you know, argument fire, I can tell you. Oh, Matt, it's a, it's a shame we don't really do debates and discussions and stuff. We should get into that more. Because you know it's going to be people being Giovinazzi fans saying, well, look at his reaction compared yeah, to Raikkonen. Exactly. Oh, it's going to be mint, that, isn't it? Catman. So collecting this data is nothing new, though, because um, I don't know if everybody remembers the 27 Austrian Grand Prix when Bottas got a lightning start and everybody was saying, oh, he's got a false start. Um, and they were saying that he he started moving within 0.2 seconds of the lights going out. And they were saying, you know, Rob was saying about whether they're going to see sort of superhuman reaction times and really big that up. There's got to be a uh, there's got to be a, an element of anticipation in that, surely. A very, very familiar of you to call him Rob there. Obviously different for me now we're on. I call him Smedo. You know, you know, Sm- Smedders. No, no, we're not on those terms at all. Uh, Steve? Uh, well, I think Catman was right. Back then they did have a measure of uh, whether he jumped the gun. But from my understanding of that is it was a simple timing loop sensor in the car that just measured when you started to accelerate and moved across the timing sensor. It wasn't measuring every millisecond the position of every car in relation to every other car and gear changes and all of that stuff um, that is now going to be included in this new data set. 
Oh my god, you saying data, data? Oh, sorry, just, data, data. Me. What the hell? I'm just. Can you not? Can you not acclimatize to your environment? You're in a UK shed. <laughs> Come on, Stephen. Don't <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, this is what really impresses me, and. You know, I've seen plenty of Amazon graphics come in, especially the more predictive ones, for lots of appropriate ridicule and mockery, and fair enough. But then there are also some of the really fact-based ones, like the turn analysis and stuff like that, that I really, really love. And what I love about this one is this is all based on two things, telemetry from the cars and data from the timing loops. And what they do, and the challenge, and this is what I would have loved to have heard Rob talk more about how they work this out. The challenge is the timing data from the loops is synced to the start lights. So when the lights go out, you have a set fixed reference. But the, the data from the car, the telemetry from the car, is only synced to the car's internal clock. So those 20 cars are not synced to each other. And so what they're doing is they're taking the timing loop data and re cross-referencing it with the individual car telemetry data to create a fixed clock for every vehicle they're analyzing. And that's like some super impressive stuff. Uh-huh. Catman, say things I'll understand. You mean they don't, uh, you know, on the grid, just like a James Bond thing, synchronize your watches, folks, and here we go. Nope. Not the ECUs, no. <laughs> I was going to say, I absolutely love that uh, Trump has picked up on, you know, the data that they present has to be relatable and understandable because... You know, if the the ones that we ridicule are the driver rating system or the the tire wear percentages, where ones. you have yeah, exactly, you have no the predictive ones where you have no idea where they've got their data, how they could possibly come up with saying that Raikkonen is better than Giovinazzi on this corner, whereas the ones with the overlays, you know, that that's real interesting stuff that you can uh, can really get get into. Trumpets. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is the thing, like if you're like the predictive, like the, oh, yeah, there's a 76% chance of an overtake. Well, if I'm looking at a timing screen and I watch a lap or two go by and I see the gap, then I can calculate on my own in my head how many more laps it'll be before driver A catches driver B. And I think sometimes they overcomplicate those kinds of analyses. Mm. But stuff like this, and I love it because really... He's written uh, a whole blog about how this works, and I can highly recommend you go read it for yourself. Uh, the link, as you said earlier, will be in the show notes to that blog. But they've divided the startup into the reaction phase, the initial phase, and the secondary phase. And the way they look at it by dividing it up into those phases is the reaction phase really, it's just about who drops the clutch closest to when the lights go out. Mm. And, and who gets the wheel, who gets the clutch bite point right uh, amongst the engineers. The first phase to 100 kilometers an hour is all about who can manage the wheel spin and synchronize the throttle and clutch the best. And then the secondary phase up to 200, this is really what I love, is who uses the least amount of directional change, who gets the best tow, who's made the best positioning and the best guesses aiming at the holes that aren't even going to be there yet to gain the most places. And if that's not enough for you, later offline, they give you a full-fledged analysis of everyone's start mm. with who's on full throttle, when they break, whether or not they're in a tow. So uh, they give a sample one from Monza. And you can go and look at, this is in the blog, you can go and look at the blog and see how it broke down at the start for yourself and who you think really did the best job. Okay, so 
we can't shy away from a lot of lot of ground to cover here. This really is a fascinating to- topic. Can't shy away from that. We yes, we have criticised some of those on screen graphics, and some of them. The, the one of the questions I would have wanted to ask, but we didn't have time, was how much of it is automatic and how much of it is mandronic. So as I alluded to, the ones that are predictive have the most opportunity to go wrong. So putting together the microsector times in FP3 to predict the qualifying, there's a lot of room for that to go on, to go wrong. And I, I think that that one is purely just from, say, the fastest sectors. And it's probably that they go into the microsectors, not just sector one, two, three. They probably go into the, there's like 20 timing loops or whatever. 25. 25, exactly. So that's probably, you know, a bit of information that they have in their pockets that we don't see that gives them that graphic. Other things like the the overtake difficulty, I, I, I think there is probably a bit of a mandronic uh, element there. And then that leaves you open to being wrong, obviously. And then the tire one. I won't shy away from the fact that the tire one seems random. Like it's always, try- it seems like it's trying to big up. These tires are about to die. Something could happen any minute now. Don't make tea. Don't you dare leave your screen. Yeah, the best tire thing they ever had was the FLIR cameras. And I wish they'd just bring them back so you could see uh, the, the which tempers. tires were getting how hot <laughs> when. Yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm not going to shy away from that, Catman. That's the only point I wanted to make is that I didn't want to shy away from the criticism we've had of those kind of predictive ones. But just giving us raw data and, and things like this kind of gives us the ability to judge what their drivers are doing. And now we can really ask and assess the question as fans, what makes a good start? Like, well, I don't know. I literally, I don't have any idea. I've started a single seater car once and it was, I watched like a bunch of like, this is all like dads or whatever. I mean, I watched a bunch of people in front of me just going, kadunk and dying and like hearing the instructor shout, no. All the revs, like literally all the revs and just drop the turnip and just get out of there. And then so I was like the fifth and I was able to actually get away. But I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. What makes a good start? I have no idea. But what it'll be really <laughs> interesting to see is uh, is when it's on a wet track, for example, that'll be where you get the most interesting information. You'll see the, as you say, the different phases of the start where they bog down or, or whatever. I think that's going to be where it's going to be most fascinating. So do you really want to ask the question, what's involved in the start? Because, you know, I might want to try and answer it. All right. Okay, let's give it a go. All right. So for the reaction, like I said, mainly what you're measuring there is how quickly the first clutch, because Formula One uses two clutches. It's a first clutch and a second clutch. It's how quickly the first clutch gets engaged, which also includes how well the bite point for that clutch is set, i.e. when they drop it, the, you get maximum traction and minimum wheel spin. So if you get that wrong, you're going to be you're rea- you're going to be slower in that initial phase. The first phase is zero to one hundred, and there that's when you release start to release that second clutch. Yeah, and but you're also managing the throttle with that, and you're having to synchronize it, and you're also sensing: Am I picking up wheel spin? How quickly am I letting that second clutch out? while I'm on the throttle. And then the second phase is once you're through that, that's all about positioning and slipstream and uh, just maneuvering, correctly maneuvering to the first braking uh, zone. All right. Well, I think we've covered that pretty comprehensively. I would love your feedback. Do me a favor. Can you do it at feedback at mistapex.net for a little while? I have a a big backlog of emails. If you do feedback at mistapex.net, Matt gets it as well. 
You can also email Matt at MissedApex.net or you can DM us to uh, uh, Apex at MissedApexF1 on Twitter because then some of the more competent social media people in the team pick that up and you might you might have better luck getting a response if you do that. I think uh, let's wait for some response from this, Matt. Let's sit on it and I think let's move on with the show. 44 minutes in. And I must say, very, very exciting uh, to have Rob Smedley come and talk to the shed, talk to us in the shed, even if he really didn't expect to be doing that. But credit to him for, for going with it. And I think we got a, a stonking interview out of it. We could go and talk about calendar stuff, but I have, I have one thing that I want to I talk about. I want to talk about practice time. And I know people don't like it when we relate stuff to our iRacing events, but I will loop it in. I think this will be significant. Uh, you should check out the link to our iRacing event that Uncle Steve so caringly and beautifully put together. It's like a proper telly program. Go and check out the link below. You'll hear Chris and Chris commentating as well. A great intro from Matt Trumpets at the beginning too. Uh, I did the track guide, so that was good. And we had some stewarding from uh, Bradley Philpot too. So you get to see the whole crew in action. Me, Matt, Kyle and Alex were also on-track competitors. And now we've established I am the best sim racing driver in the Mist Apex panel because I'm, I'm ranked sixth after round one out of 44 drivers. And here's my question, Matt. It's a bit of a tragedy that I'm up in sixth. I'm not the sixth best driver, but I had quite a lot of time during the day, the daytimes, and I, I probably did about a thousand laps and I was able to to just practice my way to the front of the grid. I see. A thousand lap Larry. A thousand lap Larry, as Kyle yeah. puts it. So here's the question when it comes to F1 is obviously the more practice time you have, the more you can get honed in. We're seeing less practice time with the sprint races and... If a driver like me can compete in the sort of field we've got by by just cheating, essentially, it took me that whole time to just even find the best way around the track. And I know F1 drivers are slightly better than me, but the gaps close the more you have practice. And it's not just the drivers, it's the team as well with the setups. So what do we want? Who do we throw that to? Let's throw that to Uncle Steve. Uncle Steve, what, what do we want on an F1 weekend if we could give them more practice, would we, to see what their ultimate capable performance is? Or do we want to throw them in at the deep end and see what happens? I think that it's probably better to throw them in a bit more at the deep end on a race weekend. I think that having less practice puts a little more pressure onto the teams. They've got to perform faster, better. They've got to think on their feet. I think that we could um, compensate a little for that for allowing a little bit more testing during the year, just so that they could, you know, get clo- come closer to grips with the car's performance and that sort of thing. There is almost no testing at all during the year now. And I remember back from, you know, for many, many, many years, uh, some of the big teams ran totally independent testing teams and they yeah. were out testing five and six days a week. Now, I'm not suggesting we go back to that, but I am suggesting that perhaps we could run two or three testing sessions during the year, short ones, to give the teams a little bit of extra testing time, and then you know keep the testing times short on the week on, on the, uh, the race weekends. I have no problem with that. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. 
Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Uh, we don't have many of the team members that listen to this show, but I can feel them all screaming, 23 races, Uncle Steve. They say 23 races, and you want us to do extra testing time as well. Catman. Yeah, I know. Catman. Yeah, and it's it's not only, don't forget, that the, the teams that could do all of that testing were Ferrari in the noughties. You know, you're essentially advocating for another Schumacher dominance era um, because you're just going to elevate that gap for those who can do all that testing and, and those who can't. So I think it's about core ability, Matt. So look, my baseline general driving talent isn't good compared to the rest of the field. But with practice, with more practice, I was able to to, to bring myself up to that point. So what do we want to test? Do we want to test their ability to master a track as a team and a driver combo? Or do we want to tra- test the core goodness of the car and the and the core driver ability? After my experience this weekend, I feel like I just want to say, make qualifying the first practice on you go on you go figure it out let let them change more change part fermi rules by all means but just just let them let them crack on from from quality onwards and let's see who's got that that core skill yeah well i love that people absolutely slate everything about the sprint race but for me the highlight is the fact that you get a friday morning practice and then it's right into qualifying Nobody likes this. I mean, we just heard from Rob Smedley. What is he? A data guy. What does he want? Data. The more practice, the more data. The more tests, the more data. The more data, the more consistent the performance, the less random variability that makes it fun for us to watch occurs. And I do agree to a certain extent. I think it it is a test of a driver's talent, not their overall ability to achieve. But it is a test of of a driver's talent to be able to walk in and immediately be on it. And I've heard team principals talk about this. There are some drivers who will sit in the car three laps in to their first session. They are incredibly fast. Other drivers will take much longer to get there. But the thing is, they all get there. And also, frankly, with the use of simulators, I think it's much less of an issue than it would have been years and years ago where I couldn't sit on my home computer and learn a track 
well enough to then sit in the car and go fast on Friday. That's not the same kind of safety issue you might have had earlier. But Catman, answer this from Maria in our Slack chat group. Uh, isn't the whole point of finding out the best of all the teams when they have maximised their abilities? Isn't, isn't that the whole point? Yes, I suppose it is. But then you can also uh, look at it as who can maximise their budget. So, uh, you know, yeah. Mercedes have got you know, $400 million or whatever it is. And Williams have only got 100. So there's no way you're going to get the same performance out of them if uh if they're allowed to extensively test so you gotta you gotta limit it somehow to keep the field together in the 90s and noughties you know we had uh you know testing you know every single minute you know ferrari had their own test track at fiorano and they just pounded laps into the early evenings you know you see pictures of them in the dark doing it and uh and, and you know they were miles ahead for that very reason yeah, I kind of agree with you about that. But what I was suggesting was not that we went back to the days where, you know, teams just ran their own test sessions. I'm suggesting that perhaps in the middle of the summer break, there is one weekend where there is testing that everybody can go to. It's two days. You know, we'll open up Silverstone. You can come test all you like there. Uh, and maybe, I'm not suggesting that we give teams open slather to test because there is going to be the uh, – uh, spending cap next year, all that has to be taken into account. But I do think that sometimes teams are expected to, and yeah, they get paid for it, but to perform without really getting a chance to test the real car. Yes, they can go, you know, uh, sim racing in, in their simulators, but uh, putting a car on track is a totally different ball game, I reckon. Yeah, as long as it's uh, at Silverstone where I can uh, go and watch it and it's open, then it's absolutely fine. Yeah, it's only 50, 50 minutes from me, Matt. Jealous uh, much. Interestingly, uh, Chris Fonseca in the chat room says, let teams with fewer points test for longer. Well, aside from the economic problems with that, because usually teams with fewer points have less money to mm-hmm, go testing mm-hmm. with in the first place, it's actually already a feature of the rules that um, teams with fewer points are getting to use more resources developing their car and teams who were higher in the championship are having more and more restricted computer testing times, wind tunnel times, even engine dyno bench times are being restricted now to help save money. And so I think the economics is what you come up against when you make this argument for increasing testing more than anything else. but also. Also, what you're looking at is a team like Mercedes has a huge advantage when they show up to a track. They've got more people. They've got more collected historical data that they can call on. But the shorter the time period the car is actually on track, the more the advantage uh, uh, lies to someone like, say, McLaren, who don't quite have that same budget, but have perhaps an easier car to set up and understand it better. It's not as tricky to set up to optimize it. So I think in the long run, shortening practice time will play to the advantage of the midfield teams. And I think what we're just seeing right now uh, is the sort of the long built historical advantage of all that money is still playing out a little bit, but the longer it goes with shorter practice periods, the more cars will be designed. And I, I think it will help even up the field and make the competition more interesting as a result. So you've spoken for quite a long time there. You've made a lot of points. I will say I think you've been particularly excellent on this episode so far. Uh, well, I won't let it happen again. Don't worry. Yeah, please. You are eclipsing me at the moment. I'm, I'm, I'm quite upset. I'm quite upset. No, good job. Good job. 
I just, I just, I don't know how you do all that without breathing, frankly. I want to take a quick poll then. What I asked, I know Steve brought us down the non-race testing, which is valid. So we're going to vote. In race, do we want a bunch of testing, like a bunch of practice, FP1, FP2, FP3, FP17? Because we could do, you could just say start Monday. Or would we like to throw them in with, you know, more of the sprint race format that we've seen with less testing, perhaps even leaning towards my just chuck him in at quali. Out of those options, Steve, what do you fancy? Uh, I think shortening the race uh, weekend testings. I think, okay. you know, ideally I reckon you get one one-hour test session on Friday morning and you go qualify. Nice, come on. The problem is that is that the people who have paid uh, you know millions of pounds to go and watch a race don't yeah. get to see much on-track action. So I'm advocating uh, quali early on Friday as Spanner said, a wonderful nice. idea of opening up the Park Ferme rules so that if they stuff it in qualifying and get the wrong setup, <laughs> they can always change it. And then a couple of sessions until the race. Perfect. And no sprint race. Matt, where do you sit? I'm firmly in favor of limiting the practice and increasing the meaningful sessions. So count me in for the sprint race. I know it has problems. Yep. Yeah. I know it has issues and it should not set the grid for sunday i'm fully on board with that but if it was made its own thing if it was its own competition that happened on saturdays and then you were allowed to make changes for the sunday yeah i i think i think that's the way to go because it's the least practice and the most racing we're going to see it's not an entirely unfair point is it catman because okay we are in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and letting the perfect be the enemy of the good so yes i don't like the fact that it sets the grid because then how do you set the grid for that? You know, it's sprint races all the way down. But that doesn't mean that meaningful sessions throughout a race weekend is necessarily a terrible idea. I don't agree with how it was implemented. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. Now now I'm all over the place. I don't know what I think. Yeah, and uh, I love the sprint race as long as it doesn't decide who gets that pole trophy. Yeah, I think, so. I think it's yeah. a ridiculous idea. The, fa- the guy who gets pole should be the one who is fastest in qualifying. You know, the, uh, they had... Lewis was fastest and Bottas had pole. You're like, well, that's... Yeah, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Works. Yeah. And I will just point out as a little appendix to this discussion that prior to his entry to Formula One, my understanding was that Lance Stroll hired a historic Williams. Yeah. Went to many different racetracks. Yeah, with Davison. Yeah. And spent weekends being coached before he even started. So that would be my argument against, you know, everyone coming into the sport should have the same amount of time to get good at it. Well, now hang on a minute. Now hang on a minute. What was David Beckham's biggest strength was that he would spend more time practicing. He was there first and he was there last and he would just kick a thousand free kicks until he became the best free kick taker of of his era. Come on. Yeah, that's fine. It's the same with Johnny Wilkinson in the rugby, you know, with the with the, the, the goals, the drop goals that he was doing. But you've got to set a limit so that you have a competition. If, uh, you know, if it was a case of, you know, everybody could do the same, then that's fine. But unfortunately, that's just not the reality. Yeah, it costs Beckham time and effort, True. but not the same kind of money it costs to hire a Williams, fly it to a circuit, hire a coach and run the thing for a weekend. Not every driver can do that, and that's that's the advantage that I would like to see nullified. Okay, listen in, Matt. Look, if you're just going to break every analogy I try to to bring up on Mist Apex, I just I feel yeah. like it's going to be difficult. Oh, I'm sorry. Like you're just constantly like I'm like the analogy, and you're like, oh, it doesn't work for this reason, and you just right. you're, you're ruining it. 
I can break it further for you if you like. Go on then. So uh, Mazepin decided to uh, rent himself a uh, Mercedes for a couple of years. So yeah, Yeah. sorry about that. (laughs) I rest my case. (sighs) Sorry. Let's talk about the calendar. Lots of lots of chat from F1 team members before the calendar was announced. There was there was some really good tweet threads out there actually about what F1 teamsters actually go through. You know their their day to day, their routines, and that being kind of then multiplied many times over by the extended calendar. And I do have I can have complete sympathy for people in jobs like that who who decide to also try and do it while having a family. Uh, you know, after having kids and suddenly seeing the commitment they have increased massively, it must be very scary. But the FIA has come out with a 23 race calendar and it does look like that's the way they want to go. Formula One will make more money. It will be more successful if they have more dates on the calendar. They want to be in just about every continent, although they seem to have skipped Antarctica and Africa again. And no Kailama hinted at on the calendar. But Otherwise, there's a a big Middle East presence on the F1 calendar, more dates in the US, still maintaining the European dates and uh, and the Asian dates. And how do you do that without adding more races to the calendar? And and this is where we're at, Catman. It's 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 the battle between F1 being a commercial entity. And if they put 23 races on, I will watch 23 races. And I'm not the only one. They know. They know they've got me suckered in. I'm like, yeah, just plug it right into my arm. Yeah, just stick it straight in. I'm fine. I'll watch 23 races. I'll watch 50 if they put it on, even if it's not the best. But they have to put that against the human element as well. Yep, the real killer is, I would watch one every five minutes, but the the real killer is going to be the seven double headers and the two triple headers that we've got on the calendar. It's going to be absolutely mad for those guys and girls who are having to travel out to the circuits. Yeah, and Steve, someone's just put his nick has just put in the live chat. My wife and kids aren't looking forward to more races. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. I don't blame him. Yeah, I do. Like dad has, dad has a bit of immunity in our house during a race weekend. There's a bit, I've been watching it long enough now that people understand, like you can sit next to me. You cannot chew sat next to me. I have my own headphones for when they're getting too much. I put over the head headphones over the top. You're not going to be sat playing a Rubik's Cube next to me, tree face. Like there's there's like a ring of fear around that. It's the only time, in fact, in my house where I have any kind of respect at all, Catman, where they will give me any room at all. But for the F1, yeah, they might not tolerate 23, Catman. You just haven't indoctrinated your kids enough yet. You know, my um, my little daughter is only two to three years old. She uh, points at the screen and just goes, go Lando. She doesn't <laughs> know what it is. She just shouts at the screen. Steve. <laughs> I think that uh, Formula One got to be a little bit careful. Yes, fans like you and I and the people in the chat room obsessive uh, nerds. We'll watch, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll watch a hundred if there's a hundred because yeah. we're you know <laughs> we're tragics. But Formula One, in order to build their audience, have to go over, have to go after the people that perhaps won't commit that amount of time. And I think you've got to be careful that uh, you don't end up with so many races that suddenly it becomes everyday boring hoo-ha. Ordinary, yeah. I I, I mean, the old adage is you always leave the audience wanting a bit more, and I think that you've got to be a bit careful about that. I don't disagree, 
But by the same token, the more races, the more likely a non-viewer becomes a converted viewer because it's more available for them to casually run across. So I, so I agree, there is a fine line there. Yeah, they, they become uh, a casual viewer until uh, it gets to the point where they say, God, there's so many races, I can't afford all this time anymore. You know, my wife is giving me a hard time for spending every Saturday, every Sunday afternoon. Yes, well, and, and husbands also, obviously. And husbands. And so they <laughs> drift away uh, and they lose some interest. I think there's a, you know, you've just got to take all those things into account. And it's not just the fact like, you know, for the teams, it's hard. Yeah, all these double headers and the triple headers, and it's amazing. I mean, we've got eight races in 10 weeks at the, in the first half of the uh, calendar, and then 10 races in 12 weeks in the second half of the calendar. And what makes it even worse is not just the number of races, but the way they're laid out. We start the Middle East, we go to Australia for one, go to Europe for one, go to North America for one, go back to Europe for two, then we go to Baku. Is that Europe or Asia? Uh, Yes. Yes. (laughs) Then then we go to North America for one, Europe for seven, Russia for one, Asia for two, North America for two, South America for one, and the Middle East again, where we started, at the end of the uh, season. We've gone around the world three times. <laughs> Surely for a, an organisation that is, you know, concerned about its carbon footprint and all that sort of thing, that that is just nuts. That's it. The one that stands out for me is the uh, Azerbaijan to Canada doubleheader. You know, most of the others, if there's a gap, it's because they're having to cross continents. Whereas, you know, that one is the 12th of June to the 19th of June, going from, from Baku to Montreal. That's crazy to me. And not the first time, if I'm not mistaken. I think they've done that weird transfer before, and I don't think anybody likes it. But with your permission, I, I've had a thought about this. Um, and that is that uh, an acquaintance of mine in a separate industry has come across uh, an issue where they were hired to do a job, short-term job, beginning and fixed end. But the company that hired them said, we demand diversity. There's a huge push for diversity in this industry right now. And they said, well, okay, that's fine. But instead of hiring the two very experienced people I would have hired, because the stepladder to this job yeah. is, is not yet fulfilled, I'm going to have to hire more inexperienced people for longer, and that will cost you more money. But the flip side is I will train them, and then they will be there in this industry for the long term so i'm wondering maybe because we're talking about the team's mental health yeah right we're talking about stress maybe there's an opportunity for formula one to make a carve out in the cost cap Mm. for just for non-majority hires and bring in some people train them up to help relieve the stress but not let the teams get away with getting rid of other people just to save money and spend it in the budget elsewhere. I mean, it was just a thought that sure. I had. Yeah. And I thought it would be worth a little bit of discussion. So, so there's a few different cogs there in that argument. And I, and I will say, I'm going to use the word cog twice in two sentences. Damn, damn, this is bad Sorry. hosting. Okay, but... I'm just like, I'm just doing it to you. I am a very small cog in part of that movement uh, to, to increase diversity that has come out in the last few years, a very positive push. There's some really good people doing some very good things. And, and one of the things that... You know, the, the common argument is, well, hire the best people for the job. And if you go outside of that sphere, if you go outside to, to, to do positive discrimination, then you'll reduce the quality. And actually, 
the, the people I've been helping on a very small scale do that, what they found is actually the quality people, they were there. They were there the whole time. Like it hasn't been that hard. It hasn't been that hard to fill that position with more diversity because there are skilled people out there in the world. It, it's a myth that somehow the status quo is already filled with all the most talented people and the only people who would be capable of that job. That, that myth is about to get smashed wide open. So I think we're going to see a lot of positive things from that coming forward. Come on. Yeah, and I think the uh, the Hamilton Commission is is really hopefully going to going to yeah. bring some fruit in in Formula One specifically for that, and also they're doing it outside with their teaching roles in Great Britain uh, to try and help to to improve uh, representation of different groups uh, yeah. in, the, in in that specifically. So, so you only need to look at what F one uh, broadcasts themselves have been putting out. Those, those people they didn't come from nowhere. They have they're not like smuck schmucks that were taught in a very small amount of time to do stuff, there was talented content creators and presenters and, and broadcasters out there the whole time. It was it, it, not, it's not, it's, it's not that it's easy, it's that you just need the will and you need to look. The more interesting thing that we're talking about right now, I think, is that effect on the mental health of the teams. And you would think that with more races, there would simply be more. But I know there's the budget cap, but if you go from 19 to 23 races, like obviously you, the budget cap then goes up, surely. That's, that's got to be right, right? So instead of having the same people going to every race, then you're going to rotate that a little bit. And you're going to have, okay, I don't know, this is my experience in the military when it came to increased tours. Yeah, we understood. Like me at 22, young, dumb and full of a lack of responsibility. I, I'll, I'll go, I'll go wherever. I'll go sit in a forest in Germany, I don't mind. Um, but some of the lads that had had families, you might give them slightly less if they wanted to. Or I don't know. Maybe they want. Maybe maybe more if they wanted to get away. But you manage that, and you, there is an element of choice to it. I would feel bad if people were like, "You will, you will spend more time away from your family. You will go to twenty three races, regardless of what you want." But you would hope that with more budget cap, man, that there would be flexibility, and it's actually a good opportunity to normalise flexible working, which in turn helps diversity and inequality, especially helps women. So maybe this is an opportunity. So yeah, my, my two points on that were with the people who are there in the race teams who started when there are only 16 races, now there's 23. It's They in effect are being forced to because they didn't sign up for 23 weekends away from their partners and families. The second thing is... Well, hang on, hang on a minute. Well, they don't have to do 23 weekends away. If they're being forced to do 23 weekends away, yes, but surely... With an increased calendar, there's more scope to be flexible, rotate, get more people in. Running a business, you you would try and do it on the fewest staff possible because your staff costs will be 50 to 60% of your overheads. So, you know, the other thing as well is, have you is the uh, cost cap actually confirmed to be going up? No, with more no, races? not at all. No, I was speculating. Uh, Steve? Because I don't think that's actually the case. I think it's the opposite. I think the, the cost cap has been set and they've gone, oh, by the way, you're going to have to do another three races compared to what you were expecting two years ago when we signed up to this. If that's the case, that's madness. But uh, Steve, then, then Matt. Oh, well, <laughs> Catman just uh, made the point. Yes, I, might, I was going to ask whether or not we'd had uh, confirmation that, you know, every time they add a race, that the budget cap will go up. And I think I'm in agreement with everyone else. No, it's not. So, yes, the teams are being forced to do more races with no more resources. Which gets back to why I suggested maybe a carve out for race team and support team, non-majority hires might be a really elegant solution to speeding up diversity in the sport of Formula One. 
that would suggest that they, that would be cheaper. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I think, you know, uh, you know, everybody who, who's got to this level is, is going to be, you know, excellently qualified and, and able to do the job. Okay. So we've got a bit of feedback here from our live chat. We've got who, who, who's here that's, who's here that's saying, uh, that you will dilute the squads. Ah, Pete. Hello, Pete. Pete says, ain't that easy to rotate? Oh, he's, he's northern. I know, Pete. Ain't that easy to rotate, says Pete. Team cohesion. But, you know, that is what people said as well when, you know, the, the European Cup started and the Champions League started and football teams started having squad rotation and you just adapt to it. And yes, in my previous lives that I was talking about earlier, you did have to rotate those teams, those squads, those platoons per per mission per per deployment it it happens you you aren't always going to have bob derrick and, uh, and and lillian all lined up exactly the way the same every single race look at all the new mercedes engineers at red bull now <laughs> it's a part of it's a part of it's a part <laughs> that of, took me a of second. Sport. That you bring took in me new people and you train them all right let's i'm just it. saying why not make it easier for to increase diversity and give the teams what they're begging for which is a little extra personnel to manage all these extra races pete's uh pete there in the chat is protesting that he's he's not northern but he's like from birmingham or something i've, I've only got one line i've got like four accents so come on Leave me alone. Let's look at the schedule itself. And if you are a member of a team and you either agree or disagree, do feel please, please do get in touch. Uh, spanners or feedback at mistapex.net. I want to look at the actual calendar itself. It is a significant change, Catman. We've got Bahrain as the season opener. And yeah, it's, it's a track I love. It's a track that has delivered more than it hasn't. Sorry, sorry, Steve. This is a good opener. This is a good, and and I think importantly, we will know more about the teams after Bahrain than we tend to know after Melbourne. It's a slightly more representative circuit. You know, the dust and the different temperatures do make it slightly, I, I guess, depends on what you want. You know, do you want it to be like a European circuit? Because it's not like that. Um, but it is a, a fantastic, you know, uh, circuit for dueling. And that's what we really want. Um, in the first race, you want them to be coming out guns blazing. You want it to be a, a real, you know, blaster of an opener. Un- unfortunately, sorry, Steve, uh, Melbourne doesn't tend to produce <laughs> no, no, Steve, very often. <laughs> no need to be sorry. I agree with you. I, I think the track configuration in Melbourne wasn't a good one for the first race. And I guess the fact they're going to be testing in Bahrain also makes it easier you know, logistically and all that sort of stuff if they run the first race of the season there. Okay. And then so from that, we have got. Uh, Jedi, and I guess we're going to find out about that this season. Although some pictures of the track don't look entirely track-like, they look quite constructiony. Did you just say Jedi? Oh no! Uh, hold on, you tell me the <laughs> what? Well, well, Je- Jedi, I think it is, isn't it? No, I, I or think, is it an Obi Wan Kenobi track? I think it can be pronounced both ways, Steve. I don't, <laughs> Steve. I don't appreciate you coming on here. All right, I don't tell you how to video, do I? I don't tell you. No, I do, but uh, <laughs> I to do. Be argue fair, you were thing. telling Sorry. him how to pronounce data earlier, oh, so I, I think it's just payback. I've been foisted by my own potato here, haven't I? Oh my goodness! Right, okay. So, uh, tell me how to say it again, Steve. Cheddar, cheddar, cheddar. What did I say? Yeah, Jedi. like cheddar cheese. Mm, okay, so cheddar. <laughs> right, we will get a glimpse of how that will be, and I don't think uh, there's not optimism particularly for this first one, but you know they will have then another six months to get prepared for for race two of next season next season i mean it's it's still a beach right now and we've got a few yeah. weeks left until the actual race so we'll see how that goes 
Okay, and then we go to Australia, and that's fine. We can enjoy the Australian Grand Prix then, I think, in a bit of context, without the pressure of, like, everyone has waited all winter to see who is the the best team. Imola, good? good? I'll go on, Matt. What's up? Yeah, no, no, I was going to say the nice thing about Australia is the temperatures will be headed towards uh, wintertime temperatures, so we should have some fun tyre stuff going on. Is that oh, right, you'll Steve? have fun tyre stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, they, they say that uh, in Australia, you know, the last weekend in March, is you, in Melbourne anyway particularly, is uh, that's where you throw your shorts away and put your jeans and your you know sweaters on and things. So it'll be certainly cooler and there's a much greater chance as they head towards winter of rain. So, you know, they're the things they've got to take into account. The, the, the thing about Brits on holidays, we, we, we go to places, say like Greece, and we will go to places and go, oh, my goodness, and we'll be straight into shorts, flip-flops, shirtless most of the time, whereas the locals will be there, like, in jeans and perhaps a suit. So our, our, you can't really, like, talk about clothing with any kind of – we don't have any common ground when it comes to that, Steve. Well, that's true, and I found the same thing when I moved up to Brisbane. I moved up here and it was 20 degrees and I thought it's beautiful and I looked around and all the Brisbaneites had jumpers and coats and things <laughs> on and I've got to say that in five years I've acclimatised and now when it gets to 20 degrees I feel cold. Well, there you go. And then uh, the rest of the season isn't so controversial, really, I guess. We've got Miami, no idea. another street circuit. So, Imola I like, I-, I will say that, Matt. Imola's return to to the F1 calendar to me has been has been welcome. I mean, it was helped by a little bit of rain this season, but yeah, yeah no, I I think it fits as a proper old school track. If you're going to have Hungaro ring there, you can certainly have Imola. Yeah, no, it it has produced good racing consistently. Uh, whether you blame it on the weather or whether you blame it on something else, um, it, it's it's a good track and it's a challenge for the drivers. I think the drivers really like it. Oh, Monaco's on there, though. They've sneaked that one back in, haven't they, Chris? Look at that. They've sneaked Monaco back in. No one's talking about it. We're all talking about the twenty, the poor team people. No one's realised that we've got to go back to Monaco. Right they after have. Spain. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that always happens, isn't it? It's always Spain, then Monaco, and people tirelessly talk about how the final sector of Barcelona is representative of Monaco pace. Yeah, but, I mean, I love the fact that Monaco's on there. As is Monza. The the thing is, what you want in a world championship is that you have such a variety of different things. You've got some street circuits, some night races, um, some races that are great for overtaking, some that aren't. But that produces such a wonderful variety of things. It gets a world champion who's best at everything out at the other end. Matt, I'm so sorry. I forgot Catman was wrong about this. I I completely forgot. I was going to say props to Catman for for continuing pushing on through the enormous array of faces you just made during that answer. <laughs> oh, sorry, was I being distracting? I did put my face on the live stream. I'm not hiding from it. Remember, my rule is I whinge about Monaco all the way up to the actual Grand Prix, and then I don't whinge about it during the race. I just smugly sit back with an expression of "I told you so." Yeah, well, I tell you, you know what I'm looking forward to is Montreal being back on yeah. the calendar. Oh my gosh, yes. The only acceptable street circuit. The only one. Steve, you're a fan? Oh, yeah. And it reminds me a lot of Albert Park. I mean, it's, you know, on an island. <laughs> Albert Park's not an island, but it's a self-contained street track around a park. It's not like racing around, you know, up and down the main street. 
Um, but I, I've always loved Montreal. I think it's a beautiful track, and I think it has great racing, and the hairpin is a great corner. I'd love to be sitting there and watching it live. Yeah, I um, I do have half an eye, Matt. I know I know we want to get to the Vancouver E-Prix for obvious reasons, and I think we'll include Matthew Carter's Canadian E-Fest link in the show notes again below if you want to go and attend that. But uh, Montreal, that has been one of my sit somewhere near that final chicane has been one of my, my F1 bucket list type things yes the wall of champions and yeah. everybody else who hits it yeah the, yeah it's just the wall of champions oh no forget that giovanazzi hits it hit it no no fine it is still the wall of champions yeah so the other thing as well is you've got abu dhabi who are making changes to their circuit for the end of this year as well now that that sits at the final race again how do we feel about that being the title deciding round? okay i tell you what look at the calendar Let's look at the openers. You've got uh, Bahrain, you've got Saudi Arabia at, at Jedi. Nope, nope, Jeddah. Steve, stop judging me. Uh, and then we've got the final race uh, at Abu Dhabi. You know, these are big ticket places to be in the schedule. And they, the Middle East events are basically having their pick and they are dominating that F1 calendar. They are, they are owning it and they might end up literally owning it. And this at least shows that region's commitment to Formula One. We've got Qatar is not on the 2022 calendar due to the World Cup, the Football World Cup, but it is on this year's and it will be on the next 10 years. So that's going to be four Middle East races. And I imagine that Qatar won't be put, you know, on Christmas Day. I'm I'm assuming it will be somewhere prominent as well. And I think, Matt, we can be assured that there is at least a, a will of that region to quite possibly take over Formula One. Or at least a pool of money vast enough mm, yeah. to continue running it. And there's all sorts of interesting stuff. But I'm, I'm just going to pose a question here. I mean, I've always, and especially with Liberty in charge, I'm just wondering, is it just a matter of time till we start to see like regional championships to go along with a world championship? I reckon that's a really good idea. And I think that if they organize it so that you went to North America and you did it and did all the races in North America and went to Europe and did all the races there, I think it would take a lot of stress off the teams. Okay, okay. So that would work if we weren't in a franchise football environment. If we were in a privateer kind of environment with 30, 40 teams and pre-qualifying, yeah, you could have uh, Genassi just, is just like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll just do the U.S., section and then you could have like a british team go okay we'll just do the european ones and we can fight and contest for that but this is franchise f1 steve there's only a limited amount of teams uh, 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 i wasn't getting at the at the point where uh, ringer teams could come in in any of those you know um continental locations i'm saying stick with the same teams but we organize it so that we only go to north america once and we do Canada, Austin, oh, Mexico on oh, one you, run um, and go to Europe, do the one run there, go to the Middle East and do the four races all in one hit there. Um, it's going to firstly help the carbon footprint. Secondly, I think it'll take stress off the teams. They do that in other championships though. So you have you have IndyCar, for example, who they say they're going to enter all of the races, but somehow when the ovals come up there, they go, oh, well, do you know what? I, 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 I think I'll duck out. Same as WEC. It's the, the LMP1 teams who just enter Spa and Le Mans. And they say, yeah, we're going to enter. But, oh, I've suddenly, I've lost the budget for Shanghai. What a shame. <laughs> Never mind. We'll just skip that one. That'll happen the same in Formula One if we make it regional. Well, I, my thought on that 
aside from the obvious one of of reducing the travel issues for the teams, is that take something like the European, where suddenly you have McLaren do really well at races. It simply gives manufacturers more wins they can talk about to sell cars and things, and it makes sponsors happy because there's more chances to win. You might have a driver do really well in the Middle East races and be very high up in the championship, and now I can use that to market my gugaws and doodads to to a naive audience. But also because each mini championship is something to be uh, to raise drama, but you still have the overarching world championship that we all know and love. So it's like you just add more winning without any losing. So looking at the rest of the calendar to fit in our favorites and to bring in the new the new tracks, 23 races was the only way to do that. It was the only way. And if you look at the, the calendar, there's nothing else controversial here. You know, Mexico, Austin, we want Austin. We like Mexico, apart from the stadium. We, we love Suzuka. Suzuka's just, I mean, it's glorious. It's magical. It's breathtaking. Singapore has its place. I don't love the racing there. It's a slightly worse uh, Monaco, but it has got stuff going for it. Uh, Sochi. Sochi? Wait a minute. Oh, is that the last Sochi? That's the last one, that right? That is the last Sochi. Oh, okay. Okay, that's good. Monza. Zandvoort has to be there because of uh, because of, uh, of Max Verstappen. And then, of course, Spa, Hungara Ring, just Hungara Ring, just clinging on to being able to accommodate modern modern Formula One cars. Uh, the, uh, the French Grand Prix. Well, I'm not going to defend that. Uh, we've got Austria, Silverstone, uh, Montreal. So, look, it is a great calendar. It, the, it, there's hardly any duffers in there, and it's going to be a lot of fun. I do hope that I'm wrong about the the ways that, that surely people will mitigate the strain on individuals within Formula One teams. I hope I'm, you know, I hope that that doesn't translate to them being forced at a whip to do 23 weekends when they when they don't have to. Hopefully it will, there'll be some common sense. There'll be a bit more of a budget. There'll be flexible working. And uh, please tell us if, if you think we've got that wrong. And this is a disaster for individuals in F1 teams. Obviously there'll be some FOMO if you've got to miss some. I understand that. But do let us know. Feedback at mistapex.net. Spanners at mistapex.net. Matt at mistapex.net. You can get hold of us all in that way as well. And Steve, you're not doing social media, are you? Why, why not? Come on, Steve. You, um, I know what you do. You <laughs> lurk with puppet accounts, but you don't have like a Steve, Uncle Steve account. Mate, I don't have no puppet accounts. I've got oh. enough angst in my life as it is without having to put up with Twitter and those yeah. sorts of things. Yeah, I'm with you. I hear you. I hear you. Okay, so don't follow Steve. Uh, you have to follow him in real life. You can follow Catman at CatmanF1. Yep, you can. Mm. I'll, dro- I'll drop in there and uh, throw in the occasional bomb and then run away and then come back two weeks later and do the same thing. Um, but I would suggest you uh, actually follow Mr. Apex Motorsports on YouTube. Nice. We will. We will. As I said before, we are going to link to that so you can see the fine work of of the uh, the Mist Apex team led by Steve Amy for that broadcast. I know it's pretend race cars, but just check out if you're a, if you're a supporter of Mist Apex, check out what we were able to put on there because I'm very very proud of it. So please do go and click the link in the show notes below. Follow Matt at MattPT55. I mean, he's been good this show, but normally I'm the best one. I know not this time round. So you can follow me at Spanners Ready and the show at Miss Apex F1. We have a Facebook group as well. And what we tend to do on these streams is give out an award to the people who've been chatting in our patron live stream. Comment of the week. 
So, Steve, you have to pay attention here. Matt's going to give us exactly three nominations, and then you're going to pick a winner. Now, would that be three as in, like, actually three, or okay, this... three is in a metaphorical three? I just give up, man. Just do, just do what you want to do. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna red light, green light this. Okay, so while I'm not looking, you can creep forward with comments of the week, and then when I turn and look at you, you are risking some Squid Game retribution. How's that? All right, sounds good to me. We are going to start with our friend Mark, who says, "I've said it in the past, but our favorite podcast hosts are a tool and a blowhard." That's just insulting me. That can't win. But accurate. Very, very accurate. How dare you? I resemble that remark. Uh, resent, resent. I resent that remark. <laughs> Mike Stoner is in, but the best analogy is that a simile is like a metaphor. Oh, don't radio for me. Who was that? Uh, that would be Mike Stoner. Oh, he's, he's the one that does all the puns, isn't he? Right, okay. Uh, it's possible. Uh, Chris Fonseca has been nominated for the following comment which was not the one I would have picked, but since he was nominated for it, I will read it. Quote, this is not the race you're looking for, uh, the Jedi Jedi. Oh, you guys are so mean. You could easily have let that go. No one would have picked me up for that, surely. And now for my third one, that would be (laughs) Maria Kledos. Okay. This is a unique map pod. Matt has only said tires once, and the pod does sound deflated for it. Oh, God. Steve, you're going to pick that one, aren't you, Steve? (laughs) Yep. That's it. That's the best one. <laughs> Read it again for us then, Matt. Right, for my friend Maria Glados, this is a unique bat pod. Matt has only said tires once, and the pod does sound deflated for it. Comment of the week. Absolutely ridiculous shenanigans from our live chat room there. Thank you very much for joining us at this stage. I think what I would like to do is on Friday do a patron-only live stream i very much enjoy those they are very casual they're not quite like normal shows so it is worse content for supporting us at patreon.com forward slash missed apex link in the show notes below but we do do just uh, jump on a live stream uh we just see who's available who's around have a nice casual chat usually after fp2 oh that might be more difficult matt it's austin isn't it so the austin grand prix so it's u.s timing so it might be in the evening friday evening uk time yeah not just that but also the race Oh, the I race, think the race is starts late as well. at our usual broadcast time. Ooh, okay. So in the past, we've had a bit of a toss-up as to whether to do it the next day or whether to just do it very late on Sunday. I think my instinct is just to do it late Sunday night. So we might start the stream at 11 p.m. UK time, something like that. Sounds good. But it's good because normally Steve is, uh, you know, barely getting through his second morning cider by that time. So, uh, <laughs> I've got to say, the, the later you do it, the better it is for me. <laughs> and Matt will be awake as well. And uh, uh, be slightly I'll, more appropriate the amount of whiskey I'm drinking. That's all I'm going to exactly, say. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, good. Well, we'll sort that out. But wherever we see you next, all I'd ask is that you work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. Hmm. Oh, check us out, Matt. Too fancy for the likes of for F1's sake podcast where's their Rob's medley interview eh where is it Phil and 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 Chica and, and the uh, other one other one in, yeah, I don't know I in, don't know I mean just like I guess you in know. your faces with your sly not that funny references to Miss Dave Peck's podcast Sh- shut up for F1's sake <laughs> if 
we go back to Saudi Arabia the second year, will that be Return of the Jedi? Oh, <laughs> here we go. And where we knew uh, it was coming. Oh, God. <laughs> oh no, that's horrible. And I, I think, like, I knew, like, there's no way that it was called Jedi. Like, there's no way. So why did that come into your head? And that is, that's like pure broadcast fog. And you just go, oh, how, do I, how do I deal with this? So you've got a few choices. You either double down and insist it is that and just gaslight and then ignore. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Or any negative feedback, like literally block anyone that dares to correct you. Or, or the other gaslighting thing is to go, no, I did say that. That's the one I use on the gardening show when it's difficult plant questions and the, the gar- expert gardener will correct me and go, oh, no, it's Fornica Harry Potius. I go, yeah, no, no, I said that. And they go, did you? I go, yeah, 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 it is, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I said Fornica, my God. That is not the best oh, that come on? Oh, It's been a rough one, this. <laughs> I was just going to suggest you pronounce all your A's as I's from the rest of the show and then it just seems normal okay steve we're gonna have to get the live version just of this taken, then. taken down as quickly as we can <laughs> <laughs>